Today's episode is a treat for me. I think it'll be a treat for you, but it also is a moment to sort of pause and realize what it is we're doing by communicating and sort of putting ourselves through a microphone out to the world to be listened to, to be heard. You hear these buzzwords like podcasts are intimate and you think about the relationship you develop and the trust and the love that forms between you and your favorite hosts and voices. But ultimately, this is a performance, whether you do a monologue or an interview and it's close to who you are, say, over coffee, but it's still a version of you. Or like the show we profile today and its wonderful host and creator, it's an actual fictional performance. Either way, I think this medium is just rife with existential questions and sometimes crises. And I think those tougher, more nuanced, murkier topics are worth wading into. And that's what we're going to do today. In, in addition to profiling a wonderful show and learning from a great host about scripting, about character development, about fiction and metafiction, we're also going to wade into some waters that might be a little bit uncomfortable or at very least very complex to navigate. So we hope we did this well. We really appreciate you listening to what is a version of me and really our producers coming through on this show. Let's get into it. I want to know how to do the things to do. A thing, a two, a three that only comes from you. Welcome to Three Clips, an original series from Castos. I'm your host, Jay Akunzo. On this show, podcasters take us inside their best work, a few pieces at a time. Today, we're going to talk to Sharon Mashihi of Appearances, and she's going to reveal some of the small stuff that made a big difference for this unbelievable, scripted, fictional show that she created. Sharon is a producer, a filmmaker, an audio artist, a true performer, and she's got this way of explaining her work that kind of brings to light the fact that you can't really separate the individual from the craft as much as we might try a little too much on this show, I might admit. The show we're going to profile today is called Appearances, and it's this autobiographical, but not really biographical, more like autofictional story about an Iranian-American woman who is reflecting on her life and family and her desire to have children as she ages into her 30s growing up in the U.S., but it really does seem to blur the lines of, you know, being based on Sharon's own experiences and being based on some characters that she created and developed and, and crafted very carefully. The show is part of the audio and art production company Mermaid Palace, as well as Radiotopia. It's a serialized nine-episode arc that was released at the end of 2020. And if you throw a stone even a little bit, even if you had an arm like, you know, my toddlers, if you threw a stone anywhere in the podcast industry after this show came out, chances are you hit somebody who is praising this show or writing about it, especially as it related to not just the great experience, and it is a good experience, but also the way that Sharon plays with form in this medium. So without further ado, let's get into this wonderful conversation full of nuance and emotion and complexity, the stuff we love to wade into on this show. Uh, let's get into that with Sharon Mashihi, creator and host of Appearances. So I, I kind of, I wanted to start here, Sharon, Caitlin Prest, collaborator, good friend of yours, creator of the heart. 
I'm wondering if so few people, it feels elusive to me personally, but so few people seem to have that person in their creative work and their art that they can go to and collaborate with consistently over time where there's that sustained context with each other. Yeah. How has that changed your work? Like what is your relationship with her professionally and how has that changed your work over time? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because Caitlin and I are not working together in this moment, though um, we very likely will work together again. But so, and I'm missing what we have. (laughs) I met Caitlin right when I was starting in radio. She had been making radio sometime, but we both, but she hadn't been working professionally. She hadn't been earning money in radio yet. And we were both in our way beginners. And I was... Yeah, I was 27, 28, and she's a few years younger than I am. And it, and we became friends right away. And we were also collaborators. Our first collaboration was actually a live performance series. Um, it was called Radio Cabaret. So I met her by working together on stuff. We became good friends right away. And we both really had this yearning to become better artists. And we both were feeling you know, from very early on, there was almost always a project that one of us was stuck on and we would go to the other for feedback on how to make the work better, but also a lot for self, for encouragement. You know, at that time, we both felt like neither one of us was very um, accepted or like inside, inside the radio world. And we both yearned to get inside and we both yearned to be able to make our living from it. She had this show, she was already making audio smut, but she wanted it to become a bigger thing. And So I I think what ended up happening is that we taught each other how to make radio. She had more experience in audio and I had had a background in film and screenwriting. So I feel like I learned a lot about radio from her and she learned a lot about story structure from me. And we, and once we started going, we were just sort of constantly teaching each other and we got very lucky in that our aesthetics were not exactly the same, but they were aligned in a way because she had in many ways made me the storyteller that I was. And I, I don't know if she would, she would say, I hope she would say that I in many ways made her the storyteller that she was. So it became, unlike any other collaboration I've ever had, it became like she wasn't me, but she was very close to me. And she was like a whole second brain. And I, hope that I was that for her. And so there's just nothing better. And then the other thing is, is that we both make personal work. So our feedback for each other would be more than editorial. It would be editorial thinking about the content itself. Like, what does this radio piece need? But like, for me, she would, she would say like, but I know you, I know you've told me this about your family. Why isn't this in the show? Or like, you've, you've told me this about your love life. Why isn't this in here? And that's something that an editor who doesn't know me as intimately personally, they can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. You've mentioned uh, before that she sort of pulled you aside at one point in your career and said that she thought you needed to find the voice of Sharon Mashihi and figure out how to share that with a mass audience. Um, Thinking back to that, that advice, what had to change in your work? Um, I don't think I was aware I was doing this at the beginning, but I think I was imitating what I thought radio was supposed to sound like. And so I just, it was elusive. I didn't know what I sound like. I just kept trying to do that. And then at a certain point, 
I mean, I remember one breakthrough moment I had when I was working on this audio documentary I made that's a precursor to appearances called Man Khubam, I Am Good. And I was struggling with making it. And then I just, I ended up making this like little montage, which was um, my mother's history from birth to now. And I had never thought of myself as a sound designer, but it came out sort of like as a fully sound design section. And I didn't know if it was good, but I knew that it was different. And I now know, I was like, oh, that's that was the beginning of me doing my thing. That's a little bit different from everybody else's thing. Um, let's go to the first clip. So we're going to pull all three of our clips today from the same episode because it's serialized. We had a little bit of a delicate dance and Sheree Turner, our producer did a great job here. We don't want to spoil too much of the story. We encourage Mm -hmm. people to go and check out the works that we're profiling on the show. So we're going to start at the prologue because we won't spoil too much, but we'll learn a lot about your craft and your approach. Um, so we're going to take all three clips from the prologue. The very first one, um, comes early naturally in that prologue episode. And you are addressing, uh, what is true and what is not true in the series uh, and you've just given us like a little bit of information about yourself and then we come into this clip i categorize this show as fiction and i call the main character melanie i'm so confused i don't know if i'm sharon or if i'm melanie (laughs) (laughs) i think i'm just call me melanie okay melanie oh all right so then uh... and i feel good about melanie melanie is basically me but different. Hi, I'm Melanie. That's Melanie's voice. And I'm Sharon. That's my voice. Melanie, Sharon, Melanie, Sharon. I will admit to you, these two voices are exactly the same. I am the truth, and Melanie is fiction. I am not somebody who could ever, ever be a novelist. Because every other sentence, I would be wanting to tell the reader on a scale of 1 to 10 how true the sentence is that they just read. She woke up that morning feeling brave, 3 out of 10, and hungry, 9 out of 10, and determined to be a better human being, 7 out of 10. This show, I guess if I had to give it a rating, I would give it 6.5, 6.5 out of 10. Sharon, what do you first notice about that piece, hearing it back? Well, I remember every minute of making that and how it and how it came to be because it was one of the last things I did in the process was was make that opening. Yeah. How how do you come up with the way to bring somebody from the real world into this sort of metafiction that you're creating? I, I imagine that's such a crucial part of it. So can you walk us through how you tried to get at it or were there different iterations? What's the process like there? Well, so I, from very, very early on, I wanted the show to be meta, but almost every time I took a stab at creating something meta, I would play it for Caitlin and it wasn't quite working. And after a while, she was like, okay, we know that meta is one of the dreams we have for this show. Let's put it aside and we'll see if we have time at the end to bring it in because the first thing we have to do is like make the story work. And there were a few dreams we had for making the show work that got put aside. The dream of a prologue episode, put it to the side. 
the dream of the character Fariba, who you know is like my favorite character in the show, but I was having trouble putting her in. So she was to the side. And so the show by, you know, by the time we were a few months before release, the show was pretty much done. It was pretty much in place. And I, I sent the whole episode series to a bunch of collaborators and friends to get their feedback. And it was one person, um, Ali Pinal, who works at Mermaid Palace, who other people had sort of said something along these lines, but I really heard it when she said it. She was just like, this is great. I'm just so confused. Like, is Melanie you? Are you Melanie? Like, and I was like, yeah, we had this dream for the meta, but we haven't had enough time and we haven't been able to figure it out. And she was like, I just feel like not knowing that is really hard. So then we were like, okay, the meta dream. (laughs) And it was going to be that only episode seven, AKA episode six and a half was going to be the meta episode. And a lot of the content that you hear in that prologue, I put into episode seven, where I sort of come clean to the audience and tell them, you know, the story is very, very closely based on me. I tried that. It wasn't quite working. And then I decided to do this direct address to the audience. We decided to keep the prologue. I I tried it. And then um, it, It came in little bits, you know, like the order in which you hear it is not the order in which the ideas arrived. You know, the first idea that arrived was this idea of the truth where I'm reading all of these different sentences. And then and then came, you know, Melanie Sharon, Melanie Sharon. So like it came in little drips and drabs and eventually it got cut and pasted next to each other in the order that you hear it. And it became what it is. But but like almost any section in this show all the whole show came about that way. Grab a sentence that I thought was going to be in episode eight, stick it in episode two, write something right before it, grab a piece of tape that I thought I wasn't going to use, you know. So the the single source of truth has to be then the script, right? There just must have been this enormous document that you're working on throughout. Uh, Yes, but I'm not completely a script first creator. Uh, Like that whole section, no part of that was written first. All of that was improvised. Oh, wow. Okay, so... What do you have any guardrails or goalposts? You're literally just stepping out over the wire, saying, "I'm going to try stuff, and then we'll see. we can always not use it." Kind of attitude. Yeah, I um, like for example, none of this show was properly tracked, like in an in a sound studio. I always, when I'm sitting at my desk, I always have a microphone, and I have I have a Google Doc, I have a microphone, I have Pro Tools open, and more of the script gets written as transcriptions from my improvisation than does, or I wouldn't say more, I would say half and half. When you're, there's just so much here. So there's the improvisation versus script. There's uh, who you are versus who the character is and and how close certain moments, not even sort of like just that character is 60% me. It's like, well, this sentence is a part of me more fully or real part of reality. Then there's so much here. um, And it's so driven by you how do you do you start to lose a sense of like who you are it's almost like method acting like where where do you like you're you're walking around the world without a microphone i'm sure thinking about this while you're in production for it or planning it where's that line in your head like how does it affect you the person while you're going through this you know it has affected me more after the fact than during so <laughs> for the bulk of making the show there was just melanie there was no sharon 
And like I said, at the very end came this meta idea of share of Sharon entering. And that was only in the last couple months of working on it. And then something opened up in me when I created Melanie and Sharon that I much more often, it's been almost a year since the show came out. I do feel like I'm living as two people now and I didn't used to have that double consciousness. And I have, I'm not thinking there's a Melanie and a Sharon in me per se, but I have fights with myself, jokes with myself. And I realize that like this thing that's happening in my mind was started when I made the show. And I, and I also think the show was confusing for a lot of other reasons. I didn't realize how much I was messing with myself by creating this story that was fictional, but I started to believe it was true. And then I thought I wanted the things that the character wanted. And I'm, it's been um, actually quite destabilizing. How do you, how do you come back to center as your, your true self? Like, how do you get out of that where you feel unmoored temporarily? How do you get back to, okay, I understand who I am again. I don't think I can answer that question because I haven't landed back yet. I'm still very much feeling the aftermath, even almost a year later of the mental thing I did to myself by making this show. So, uh, God, and it can't help that I'm like asking you questions about it. Like it's continuing it in some ways. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I would, I don't know. You know how like some people do acid and they never come back. Some version of that did kind of happen to me in making this show. Uh, So until I'm cured, I can't tell you how to get cured. We're going to move on to the next clip. Um, This clip comes in the second section of the prologue where we're hearing from her uh, and Melanie, which is your character, the the proxy Mm -hmm. for you or the version of you, um, says that she's my nosy neighbor. Uh, or the nosy neighbor, rather, in the whole town of Great Neck, New York, out on Long Island, where you slash Melanie grew up. And Fairy Bob is telling us the story of Great Neck. And we come in right in the middle of that to this clip. I welcome it. Then the 1970s. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. And at the very end of the 1970s, 1979, in fact... Something very important happened. It happened all the way across the world in Iran. The revolution. When a fundamentalist regime takes over the government, and Iran goes from being a modernized, secular, Middle Eastern country and becomes a theocracy. And in that moment, those of us who belonged to ethnic minorities, well, we get the fucking fuck out of there. Now, many of the people who fled Iran were Jewish. They arrive in the United States and they ask, where does this country put its Jews? Again and again, they hear the same answer. 
in our mind, in our great neck, white American mind, they were running from something, but none of us had an idea what. They were very wealthy, something to do with carpets, and they were from a place called Iran. What happens when the Iranians arrive in Great Neck? There is a revolution of a completely different kind. Where once there were bagel places and pizza parlors, now there are shish kebab restaurants and eyebrow threading salons. <coughs> Ow! There's a, a character you said is your favorite that you're performing. There's the history and the context setting, the sound design, the music. It's a rich and dense and important piece. What do you remember about creating that moment? Well, again, it's like funny to think of all when I think of the order of how everything we just heard happened. The first piece of sound that's in there that we heard is <clears throat> ow is the eyebrow threading because I in a in a very very early draft of an episode I had um create I had created this eyebrow threader character who is based on someone in my actual town and she's not the nosiest person in the town but but she is a gregarious figure and she does she does eyebrow threading out of her um basement salon so I, that came first. And then the second thing that arrived was that quote that you hear in our minds, in our great neck white American minds, we knew that they were running. And that came from that, that's a single piece of actually documentary audio that came from an interview I did with my ninth grade English teacher. And uh, so that came next. And then this history idea it's kind of a way that I like to do passage through time. And I did something like this in, in Manchubam when I do a history, it's like, let's move through decades and let's just have like one sound represent a decade. And it came to me very organically that like uh, Kennedy would be the sixties, Nixon would be the seventies and 1979 would be Khomeini. And that just like, it was an organic idea. It came swiftly. So this, this whole section was, one of the earliest things I made, um, but both Caitlin and I like really didn't know if there would be a place for it in the in the whole series. We were like, Fariba can't be in the show if she's just going to be a device. We're not going to introduce this neighbor character and tell a whole history from her point of view unless it's going to mean something to the show. And it took a really long time to come up with the idea for how Fariba would be useful and she does become useful later. She becomes um, important to Melanie's story arc. But uh, because of that, we were just sort of like, is this just like a cute gimmick for starting out the show? And it, it was only as the show evolved that we were able to, that it felt like it did become important to know the history of how Iranians ended up in this place. Um, and it did feel like Fairy Bush could and should be the person who tells this story. When you're creating these characters, if you're creating a fiction, uh, a work of fiction in any medium, there's a lot of character development that goes into it. And you have a sense for who they are. You're trying to prop them up as 3D people. And, you know, the, the reader, the viewer, the, the listener gets like a, a window into that. But perhaps there's more in your head. Perhaps there's a lot more written and documented about this person. When it's meta fiction, when they're, you're pulling from real people maybe more closely and trying to represent them more closely than you would even in another type of fiction is there are you sitting down to develop 
each individual character and their backstory and their life and all that? Or is it coming out more organically because you just know them and you aren't creating someone who's super different than them? It's a combination. So with the characters in the main family, in the um, family at the center of the story, Melanie, I know because Melanie is an avatar for me, but Vida, Jamshid and Babak, the parents and the brother, one of the first things I did was that I made an entire episode in each of their voices. You do ultimately hear a Vida episode, but the Babak and Jamshid episodes never made it into the final piece. But those episodes were kind of, um, I don't know if you've ever taken an acting class, but one of the first things in my high school acting class that our teacher taught us to do when we're playing a character is to write what's called a character analysis. Mm -hmm. And it's a first person history of their life, essentially. And I, so I wrote one for Jamshid, I wrote one for Bob, for Bobak, and I wrote one for Vita. So that was the beginning of knowing who they were. And then as the show evolved, they kind of became themselves. Because I work through improvisation, it's like scene upon scene upon scene, after a few months, it felt like these characters really existed in, inside me and they really existed in the show. And it was like, then we like knew something that would be such a Jamshid thing to say, you know, whereas that didn't necessarily exist right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, where did Fairybot come from? I mean, who is Fairybot? Is, is it an amalgam of people? Is there someone you're using? How do you create a character like that? Well, the very, very first impetus for Fairybot came from one of the reference works that I was using while I was making appearances was the Jonathan Franzen novel, Freedom. Uh, which is a story of a white American family in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, and th that book opens with the neighbors describing the town and the family at the center of the story. And I really loved that. And I remember um, in a very early work session, one of the associate producers on the show, Mo Laborde, I was like, can I just read you this chapter out loud because I find it so inspiring. And I did. And she was like, you should do that. This makes so much sense. You should do one of these. So that was the first idea of starting with a neighbor's point of view. And I knew that one of the themes in my life is this idea of being watched. Being watched because I come from a town where people scrutinize each other but I also had this peeping Tom idea that comes in episode one where Melanie, her entire life fantasizes that a peeping Tom is watching her. I yeah, had you that. You reveal there's actually, yeah, you reveal there's an actual. And person. there was an actual peeping Tom in my, in my town. And I, I now don't know if I fabricated this memory, but I remember one night I told my parents that I saw him and they called the police actually. And in retrospect, I'm wondering if my child self made that up. I don't know. But he was very much a presence for me. So I wanted the watching eyes. And also one of the themes of this show is the characters wish to have a child. And I have asked myself how much that wish to have a child is about wanting a witness and, and wanting to witness someone else. So the watching was very important. And uh, I, there is no single nosy neighbor in my town, but I sort of just remember like you know sometimes with my mom just sort of like peeking through the venetian blinds <laughs> at like what's happening on the block and also like you know keeping our venetian blinds closed so that like people aren't watching what's happening in our house so 
that's where it came from. And and as I said, there there is a woman who I had in mind who does eyebrow threading and great neck, who is just wonderful. She's just like a spicy, sassy woman in the community. She's not necessarily a gossip, but she's someone I really like. And she's not um, single like Fariba is, but I just like love her so much that when I think of Fariba, I'm imagining this particular woman. Uh, we're going to move on to clip number three. It's actually going to continue the section where Fairy Bus talking about Great Neck. And because we love the character so much, we wanted to just sort of let it roll. So here's more from Fairy In Great Neck, we Iranians lived our lives pretending we were still at home. But then we had children. Melanie! Melanie! Melanie, open your door! And the children, they posed some problems. God, Mom, what? What the heck are you doing with the condom in your room? They give them out in health class. The children belonged to a different culture. When they give that out, you say, No, thank you, ma'am. We don't do that in this family. And once they came of age, we could no longer pretend. I know, Mom. I'm a good little Persian girl. I know to stick to blowjobs and anal. What the heck are you talking about? I myself do not have children. I am one of those women you hear about who failed to marry. She is pickled. Fariba is a pickled, soured old maid. She is sour. But... Thank God this story is not about me. What do you notice about that piece? Um, again, it's like I have visceral memories of like the uh, 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 figuring out how to like make each piece of this work. Um, I knew from the beginning, I was always picturing this prologue. A lot of the show I picture as a movie. Uh, and so what I wanted was to have this like, crane tracking shot through the neighborhood and I wanted the tracking shot to almost move through time I want it to be like the 1960s and 70s and it's still tracking and it's like we're going through time and we're going from house to house in the neighborhood and then I want us to land in this one house and like go through the window and here we are with this family and it was for whatever reason really hard to do that Uh, for me I, I think that like the secretly hardest thing about making radio is transitions. And I would say that that's where the bulk of the like energy and work to making this show work went. I'm a natural improviser. I'm a pretty fast sound designer and I can create all of these disparate parts, but the connective tissue that makes them go together is the hardest thing because if the transition isn't there, that's where your ear drops out and you stop listening and then you're gone and you're not connected to the thing. And, you know, now that the transition is there, it makes so much sense. This thing goes into this thing. So, but like those, those few sentences of connective tissue that make it obvious that one thing would follow another are so hard to land on, I think. And I, and this, there's one piece of connective tissue in here that Caitlin finally landed on. And I was like, oh, thank God. Like this episode used to be a lot longer and the transition from going from the whole history of Great Neck to just the, the whole his, history of Great Neck starting in the 
20s and 30s and finally landing in the now and the Iranians coming. I kind of had that, but I was like, but how are we going to land with this one family? Like it was just, it was clunky. Every, every draft I tried, it was clunky and not working. And then Caitlin wrote the lines, you know, we lived our lives as if we were back at home, but then we had children. It was the line, but then we had children and the children posed some problems. So succinctly described the pain that's at the heart of this entire show but it took so long to get there. And every time I hear it, I'm like, that is beautiful. But then we had children and the children posed some problems. It says everything. It's a perfect transition. When you're, I, I know you've studied through salt and other places, story structure, but you also said you're an improviser and you've done experimental theater. Can you talk to me about how you navigate, like you understand the actual structure of stories and also have this desire and comfort with improvising and playing? Um, it's like I'm sort of always going back and forth. And often the back and forth happens when I'm stuck trying to do one thing. So when I'm stuck logically finding my way through an episode, like logically what should happen next, which what does this character need? What's going to make them grow? What's going to challenge them? Like, what is, how am I going to get to my climax? I'll be working in that way and I'll get really frustrated and confused and not know the answer. And then I will just like let myself riff, either riff into the microphone or by writing by hand or working on my script in my Google doc. And sometimes those riffs do not lead to breakthroughs, (laughs) but sometimes they do. And sometimes the riff is good enough to actually land in the show. Um, And similarly, you know, like, let's say I, I did create this like little piece of two minutes of show that I like, but it's not relevant to anything. That's when I'll go back to my structure and start to like, think about where to put it or how to make the transition that will make it make sense. Or so it's, it's like kind of constantly going back and forth. Mm -hmm. Is there a, like a classic structure, you know, everyone talks about Joseph Campbell's hero's journey or, you know, Dan Harmon from Rick and Morty and community modified it to his story circle. Is there something that you learned where you're like, I kind of rely on that one, or do you develop something for this specific story or your own like meta level story structure you repeat? What what when you say you revert back to the structure, what are you actually reverting back to? I, I would say there are three things I do the most. One is I rely a lot on the book Story by Robert McKee and his explanation of three act structure. I rely on that quite a bit. Another thing I rely on is something that I learned at SALT, and that is A, B, D, C, E. And that stands for action, background, development, climax, ending. And then the other thing that I do is I'm constantly outlining and re-outlining TV shows, audio pieces, and movies that I like or that feel relevant. And so I'll be like you know, that episode of Transparent, it, it worked so well. I'll go back and I'll watch it and I'll make index cards that sort of lay out the beats of that. And I'll be like, how does what happened here relate to what I'm trying to do? And that will often unlock what I'm trying to figure out. Our final segment does not contain a clip and we're going to look ahead. So 
as with any creative career, any project that sustains stagnation becomes the enemy. You know, time sort of pushes back on us. And no matter how great we start, things could grow stale, whether we check out or the audience or both. So I'm curious, what's next either in this sort of world you've built or in your career where you're trying to try something new? I don't know the answer. As I've said, I'm actually very much uh, both in psychologically, mentally, personally in the aftermath of making this show. I have a real longing to make a second season of it. I don't know if that's going to work out. Um, There's the possibility that there will be a TV adaptation. um, So that could be some version of it. Um, But I, because I'm still very much in the aftermath of it. I don't have that feeling yet of this, this is the new thing. So I don't know what the answer is. I'm kind of a slow person. (laughs) So uh, TBD is really the answer. I saw a phrase once, which is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. It's like you, you get where you're going a lot faster by slowing down in a way. Yeah. I I mean, it's a temperamental thing. Um, And also because something like appearances and the way I like to work, it's more than just like a thing I made. It was like a full bodied psychological mental experience I put myself through. And so I need to like gather up my resources before I can do that again. Awesome. Um, Sharon, as a way of saying thank you to our guests, we'd like to place a small donation in your name um, to nokidhungry.org, which is doing incredible work to eradicate childhood hunger in the United States. So we're going to place a donation as a way of saying thank you in your name. Sharon, thank you so much. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by Cherie Turner. Original theme music was provided by Cardboard Rocket Ship. You can learn more about me and my projects for creative people, including my free newsletter, my books, my course about podcast development, and more at jayaconzo.com. Three Clips is a Castos original series. I love partnering with Castos, creating this show with them. As a tech company, they provide some basic tools for podcasters, like places to host and measure your show. But the most important thing they're doing right now is to create and launch tools to help you build private podcasts. Whether you're a marketer who wants to go deeper with your in-house team and provide something exclusive that they can't find anywhere else publicly, or you're an online creator who loves the idea of building community from the audience that you've already built, and you'd like to go one step deeper in your journey with them, consider creating a private podcast. You can learn more at castos.com. That's C-A-S-T-O-S dot And now our bonus segment where every episode we ask our guests for a podcast they'd recommend that is not at the top of the charts. It's not the famous or viral show or flavor of the week. It's something you probably haven't heard of, but is worth your time. We call this segment Play It Forward. The name of the show that I want to tell you about is 365 Stories I Want to Tell You Before We Both Die. And I'm a bit biased because it was made by a friend. And I do wonder if people who are not friends with this person would love it the same amount. But I think I think it's actually excellent. And it's by a filmmaker named Kaveh Zahedi. And he collaborated with Leon Nafak, who's very famous and established podcast maker. But basically the gist of it is that 
every day for one year. The show started on January 1st. They drop a one to four minute story from Kaveh's life. And these are just anecdotes. They're not sound designed in any way. There's no other audio. He's just recalling a memory from his life. And cumulatively, and, and these are told completely out of order, but I have been listening since January 1st. And the cumulative effect of the story of a life being told in these little trickles is actually quite moving. And the wonderful thing about Kava is he is very honest and he does not, there are no cosmetics in how he tells the story of his life events. So in some of these stories, he is magical and enlightened. In a lot of these stories, he's a douchebag. Sometimes he's a fool. I mean, he just... And like, it might be hard for some people to hear a person represented so imperfectly. Um, but that's the beauty of it is, is how imperfect it all is. It's just a great show. The way I listen to it is I find that listening to just a two, one two minute episode is too brief. So I'll usually save five or six of the episodes and then I'll listen all at once, like on a Saturday or something. So again, the name of the show is uh, 365 Stories I Want to Tell You Before We Both Die. Okay, that's it for this one. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I believe great podcasting is not about who arrives. It's not about grabbing attention. It's about holding it. Or said in a more human way, it's not about who arrives. It's about who stays. That's who you aim to serve through these projects that we create. So thank you so much for staying with me and I'll talk to you every Monday with a brand new episode of Three Clips. See ya.